This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share, a podcast brought to you by The Secret Keeper Counselling based in Canberra. This podcast has everything about mental health, now and in the future. There'll be tears, there could be crying, there could be laughter, there could be swears, sometimes swears, there could be even poetry. In fact, in this one, there's definitely poetry. My guest today is Desiree. She is a poet, educator from Baton Rouge in the US, and she's in Canberra at the moment to sell her book (laughs) sink (laughs) she's on a book tour she's been here for five weeks and she's been driving up and down the m5 the federal highway flying to brisbane going to melbourne she's been all over the shop and we are currently sat in her car on one of the most revolting days canberra has to offer and uh it's gonna be fun thank you for agreeing to talk to me Desiree. yeah thanks for having Welcome. me yeah <laughs> sitting in this dust storm in our car it's amazing yeah <laughs> well we were gonna do this outside the cafe of your venue of the venue of the, the your gig tonight um and it's just too windy it's, it's too windy. like it would just be a dust in our eyes yeah <laughs> <laughs> it would be a, it would be like a nature windy podcast instead of um an interview it'd I be think like here's 35 minutes of the wind it would be <gasps> Like yes. just that's what it would be. Yes, it'd be like the wind featuring us. Yes, yeah. yes, and that's not much fun. That's not much no. fun. <laughs> Someone out there probably enjoys wind podcasts, but that's not what this one is. I'm pretty sure that would be a fetish somewhere, wouldn't <laughs> I'm it? Sure. I would not be surprised <laughs> at all. <laughs> How's your trip been? It's been actually very, very good. I I say that like I'm surprised. Um, it's been very, very good. Being on the road can be, is very, very taxing. And it can be, I tour by myself mostly, and it can be a pretty, sometimes isolating experience, sometimes overwhelming, sometimes it's hard to take care of myself. But this has been... Um, in some ways, it feels like I haven't I haven't been here for five weeks. It feels shorter, and it also feels like I've been here for years. You know. Yes. Um, time is funny that. Well, it's way. been two years since you were here last. Two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Three. Yeah. Three. 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 Over three. I was here in 2016. Wow. Yeah. And that was when we first met. That's when we met. 2016 in this very city. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At a at a poetry night called Bad Slam No Biscuit, which is no more. Yeah, that was the first show I ever did in Australia and I was still jet lagged and it was cold and I remember being like, What the fuck is going on? <laughs> they had us sing some anthem. They the Canberra had, National <laughs> Anthem. And I really was like, Is this is this really the anthem? Or are we making this up? And the video in the back, the video in the background, it was all, so, and I was like half asleep because I was still jet lagged. It was a very surreal experience. Well. I'll never forget it. Well, as, 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 uh, as poetry slams go, it was, it is and was a little bit out there and completely raucous. Yeah. yeah. So that was very much a very different experience for, I imagine. And the other thing is that in Canberra, we, we, we don't click. Yeah, with those nice things, which happens a lot in 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 places, and so we you just do a poem in Canberra, and it's just silence. And if you're lucky, at the end of it, you might get a little yeah, yeah. And you're like, is anyone out there? Yeah. Are you here? Am I alive? Do you hate me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we talk, we like to do things and mix things up a bit in Canberra. That's yeah, for sure. it was a really amazing show. I'm always really, really nervous before any show. I've been performing for 10 years total. I started performing 10 years ago. I've been doing it professionally for just about five or six. Okay. And I still am like, every gig I'm like, they're going to hate me. What am I doing here? This is wild. And every gig, for the most part, usually ends up being really, really, really incredible. Yeah. Um, and Bad Slam was no exception. Yes. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah. And I met you. You met me. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I remember driving up to Sydney a few days later, um, about a week and a half later, two days after I'd had carpal tunnel and cubital tunnel oh surgery to come to a workshop with you with a friend of friend of mine, Julia, and, and see you... And, and we had to climb up these teeny weeny little stairs into literally an attic into an yeah. attic which was definitely very entertaining considering I couldn't actually move my left arm oh by that point God. you're like I'm fine I'm fine nobody worry I'm fine just let me go last <laughs> yeah I'll just I'll be up there in a bit I'll see you in a bit yeah yeah you guys drove out because you because I had the bat slam and then I had the salt room Yes. Right? Yes. And then the workshop and the show in Sydney. And yep. um, you all just drove out and you're like, yeah, we're here. Yeah, and we're then I give Julia a, drive, a ride home yeah. that night Yeah. to her house. Um, yeah. yeah. And I was only in Australia like two and a half weeks, if I remember correctly, last time. And it took me about that long to like adjust to the time change and the schedule change. And by the time I had adjusted, I was like going back. Yeah. Already. Yeah. So when you when you think about your your start in poetry, what started it? Yeah, I mean, so I was 19. I'm originally from Northern California and moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana when I was 19. And basically, I'm like, give me the fuck out of my stupid hometown. I grew up in a small city um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do after high school. And so I applied for this AmeriCorps program. AmeriCorps is like an American service organization. So you like apply and then you do 10 months of community service and you get like a small living stipend. And so I applied and then um, I clicked the box, placed me where most needed. So I didn't pick where I was going to go. And then they were like, go to Baton Rouge because nobody wants to go there. And I'm like, great. So I moved there when I was 19 with a, with a volunteer organization had no friends uh was super felt super isolated and started going to the poetry slam and it was like mm. the first and only social thing i did and i started reading i had i had written um a little bit and had performed a couple times in my hometown but when i got to baton rouge i just really really loved the reading mm. and um it's where i met all of my closest friends that are in Baton Rouge now mm. that was 10 years ago and I started reading on the open mic and slamming and then the next year I made it on the slam team and then um it just kind of snowballed from there it was a lot of people being like you're really good at this you should keep writing and keep performing mm. and then a lot of people kind of threw their weight behind me in a way that really um set me up for success in a lot of ways so like i did i did really well in the american slam circuit and then i had poets that were that were older and more experienced vouch for me and book me kind of bigger gigs um and i didn't i i grew up really poor working class where there was no there's no like clear trajectory into adulthood mm -hmm. and kind of working class is like the the trajectory is like 
you can sometimes your parents can push you to go to college and um, ascend out of working class or you just go and do a line of work like that's blue collar like you're a secretary or you work in um, manual labor things like that mm. and so I never really had I just didn't come from a place that was um, pushed me to be anything specific so in, in a lot of ways I had kind of the freedom to be like okay I'll go in this direction um, and I found just a ton of community in poetry and mm. the thing that led me to writing really I'd always been a writer but I'd always written but the thing that made it to where I um, my first poems were about being hospitalized in a mental hospital when I was 17 mm. um, and those were like the first poems that I wrote about myself Mm. And those are the first poems that I read in Baton Rouge and, and people felt really, really moved by them. And mm. I think from the from when I started writing, I learned just intuitively and very quickly that people come to, to poetry readings to feel a connection and to feel mm. seen. And I was really lucky in that the way that I wrote just instinctually really connected with the audience in a way that I didn't know and I think that's just because I wrote from an inward place and I just wrote from a really personal place mm. and what we know about writing is that the more specific the more universal it becomes mm. um, and so I just feel like I kind of hit the nail on the head unintentionally and by accident and then here I am 10 years later mm. yeah yeah so you mentioned there that you spent some time in a hospital when you were 17 I did what was going on there? What yeah, happened? so my book is called Sync, and the title poem is the poem Sync, which is about. It took me. It took me years to be able to just really tangibly write about it. But when I was seventeen, I overdosed and um, attempted suicide, and was in a coma and hospitalized. And um, yeah, I was seventeen and had no support system and had no. Um, understanding of mental health or mental wellness or any coping mechanisms. I grew up, my mom was an addict until I was eight and the youngest of six kids. And so I had no skills to like understand the world. Mm. So when I was 17, a senior in high school, I was living by myself. Um, and my mom had moved out and moved in with a boyfriend and all my siblings had moved out and I was living alone and was just utterly overwhelmed as as young folks who are graduating high school are. I mean, mm. it's like, there's so much pressure to become something after high school. There's so much, like your whole world is changing. So mm. um, I overdosed and yeah, they they said that I wasn't, they told my family that I, that I wasn't gonna wake up, that I wasn't gonna survive. And they sat my whole family down and said, if Desiree wakes up, she'll never walk again. She probably won't wake up, but if she does, we just want to prepare you that she's not going to be who she was. Mm. And then um, a week later, I woke up and was totally fine. I, I had a lot of trouble walking for just like a couple days. Mm. And then once I was like, so that was in, because I was 17, I was in the, um, um, what's called the it was the juvenile ICU so it was like mm. a lot of little kids and then teenagers yeah and so I was in there um as I kind of gained it only took me once I woke up it took me a couple days to get my kind of body back um I remember I couldn't I remember really vividly when I woke up um I had to go take a shower and I had to go in a wheelchair and they were like we can, can you stand up in the shower and I was like yeah and I 
started taking a shower and very, very quickly was like, I need help. I can't do this. Mm. And that was, but that was like the only physical effects that I experienced was just a couple days after waking up. And Mm. um, yeah, the doctors were very, very, very surprised. And so after that, after I got, um, after a couple days of being awake in the hospital, I was then hospitalized in a mental hospital in Sacramento, California, which is just south of where I'm from. And um, I was there for about a week and then went back to school, got home, went back to school. Nothing about my life changed. No, um, I still had no support. Nobody really, uh, there was no real response to it. And so I was hospitalized again. there was this weird it was interesting being a teenager and it was almost like people were scared of me because like adults were like what is she gonna do we don't know how to support her so we're just gonna ignore her is kind of what felt like happened so I remember really vividly being at school and being pulled out of class and they were like there was a couple of my mentors in an office and they were like, we basically, we think you need to be hospitalized again. You don't seem stable. Nobody had talked to me. Nobody had like, nobody actually asked you how you were feeling. And but they let it get to a point in whatever Mm. they saw to where they were like, our only option is to, is to hospitalize her again. There was no, there was never a conversation with anyone before that. I was like back in the real world for, I don't know exactly, but less than a week and nobody talked to me. And it was really, when I got back to the hospital, all the kids that were there before were still there. And I was like, Hey guys, I'm back. (laughs) Um, but what was really interesting was I, you know, this was like 2008 and I mean, I mean, medicine is pretty developed in 2008, but this really vivid memory sticks with me. I was wearing a white sundress that was a dress I wore all the time. But in the paperwork, they said that I was being provocative and was wearing a see-through dress to school. And it was just a white dress that I had always worn. Just a white sundress. Yeah, that I had always worn. But but they, it was, it's just something that, that has always stuck with me because I was like not seen. Uh, like, it, yeah, it really felt like all the adults around me were scared and also dealing with their own shit of what does it mean to have a young person that we're supposed to be taking care of do something like this. And so then they're as adults dealing with their own guilt and shit. You know, I worked for um, a youth organization. It was a nonprofit and I was um, basically an intern. And so I was like, this youth organization was basically an after school program. Mm. And so I was like seeing my mentors every single day at my job in high school. And I think if I, my, as being an adult now and being a mentor to young people, I would imagine that having a young person that you've seen every day since she was 14 years old and then something like this happens, you have, as an adult mentor, are probably dealing with some really intense internal shit too, Mm. you know? And I think that they let that... How could I have missed that? Exactly. And because it was so... Because it was literally Mm. like everyone thought I was going to die. And Mm. so I think when I came back, it was almost like I came back from the dead, truly. Yeah. It was like everybody was like... This wasn't supposed to exactly, happen. Exactly, exactly. Um, what do we do now? Exactly. And it was like, <laughs> everybody was like, there was this simultaneous, no one was doing anything and everyone was really scared. And I just remember being like, hello, like, is anybody going to like show up at any point for me? Yeah. And I was a really abrasive kid. I grew up in a really abusive household. And like I said, my mom was an addict till I was eight. I'm the youngest of six kids. And so I was really like, I still am as an adult, but my coping mechanisms are very much like, don't touch me, you know? 
but I expect mm. adults around me to be able to navigate that because that's their literal job. Mm. So that's it's really interesting to look back on it and think about how I just in a lot of I, I, I waffle back and forth of like, was I failed as a young person or was there anything that could have been done I don't know mm. you know I don't know the answer to that mm. like if if my mentors had showed up for me in a perfect way that I could make up in my head would it have actually been different and I don't know mm. so after that um I basically had to kind of restructure my social circle as a kid as a young as a teenager mm. because the what was going on in my life was like clearly not good and healthy so I started going to the poetry readings in my hometown yeah. and um so this is before you went to Baton yeah Rouge. and yeah. it's just right before so I yeah. overdosed and was hospitalized in May of 2008 and I moved to Baton Rouge in July of 2009 right so okay. um so 12 months yeah exactly mm -hmm. and and the I mean that, that's how long it took for the application process to happen right so I started reading in that time in my hometown and then the person who ran the open mic in my hometown knew the person who ran the open mic in Baton Rouge as poetry networks yes. create themselves, you know? Yes. Um, and so he connected me with the person who ran the poetry slam in Baton Rouge and I like sent him a message on Facebook and showed up and have been going ever since and now mm. run the slam there and have been on many slam teams have coached many slam teams and um my closest friends have come from that scene and um that's where i met my long-term partner brian we've been together for six years and um yeah wow yeah yeah how how do you how do you go now do you find that you you still have times when you're when you're up and when you're down and yeah, I mean, I think I have a really incredible therapist. Her name is Cappy Landrino in Baton Rouge. And her, the way that she goes about understanding, I think, of mental illness and trauma, because there's been many a times where I'm like, tell me something's wrong with me, tell me something's, you know. And um, she has always really, really resisted that. And she's always kind of said, like, you never learned how to cope with stuff and we have to figure out coping mechanisms so that you can regulate yourself mm. because what has what happened then and what has nothing has ever happened that extreme since but um it you know it i wasn't able to regulate my emotions and i have had to learn as an adult how to do that because as a kid i just never never ever once was there any way to learn that you know like like my formative years my mother and father were drug addicts and mm. we lived in homeless shelters and we lived with family and we lived we were homeless and we lived in women's shelters there was no space to learn how to cope and your siblings weren't weren't teaching you either exactly they also didn't know. they're all head down tunnel vision just survive. trying to survive yeah mm. yeah and i was really taken care of by my siblings in like I mean, it was like in the way of necessities, you know, it's like, um, but there was no space to learn how to be an emotional human being in a setting where you're literally just like, where are we going to sleep? You know, mm. and my father was, was really, really abusive. And so my mom is literally just trying to survive. She had my mm. brother when she was 18 years old, had five kids and seven years. My, um, I have a six sibling. She's adopted. She was adopted later in life, but um, she had five children under the age of seven. Her husband was abusive. She was a drug addict. What could she have possibly, what tools and skills did she possibly have 
to be able to raise us in a way where we were going to be emotionally sound. It's it's absolutely impossible, you mm. know. But but grappling with that understanding systems that 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 affect our mental health and our mental wellness and how we cope with the world. Mm. Um, but I think as an adult, you know, I was not I had never attempted suicide before that. I had never it was not like I wouldn't even have considered myself suicidal as a teenager. I think mm. it was I think what happened was I hit an emotional height. There was access and there was space and that's what happened. Mm. And there was no, I was living by myself and I just reached in my mom's medicine cabinet who had a shit ton of medicine mm. and just did it right then. It was not like, so it was kind of spontaneous. Totally. It wasn't planned. Totally. And it yeah. would never happen. Nothing ever like that has happened again. Mm. And so it was this worst case scenario of what happens when emotions go unregulated and I have no coping mechanisms mm. and I also have no, um, support system put in place. And so mm. as an adult, um, that's been kind of the journey, you know, I'm 29 now and that's been kind of the journey is how do we manage regulating emotions in a way that can offer some sense of stability. Cause as mm. a kid, there was like no even hope for any stability. Um, and there, I was totally a, an unparented child through my entire life. And so mm. it's just figuring out how to, be an adult human in the world mm. you know but yeah my therapist is a huge part of it for sure mm. so you you bought you bought yourself a house in baton rouge with your partner Brian I did. Recently. <laughs> yeah 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 we bought a house about two and a half years ago and it still feels kind of wild baton rouge is one of those places that um the southern united states is a bit of a trip because real estate's pretty cheap People don't generally want to live there. There's a lot of people there, but like it's um not always like a very desirable place to live. It's seen very it's it's seen in a very specific light that is not ref totally reflective of what it is, but there's a lot of classism and racism and regionalism involved in the way people feel about the American South. But real estate is affordable. And there. I think it's I think it's portrayed in a particular way in totally. the on TV. Yes, as well. yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And as yeah. I'm sure you know, being in Australia, what you see on media about people that live places it's not always sometimes no. it's true but it's not always true. yeah no. yeah we bought a house and so that's one of the things that allows me to be a full-time poet we have what you all would call a granny flat hmm. i live in the granny flat and i rent out my house to tenants they pay my mortgage and it helps me be able to be a full-time poet obviously i have a book and i make money off of that and i tour and i make money writing and teaching um but that was kind of one of the things, getting that level of stability, that level of privilege, that level of social capital, made it to where things became possible that I never imagined mm. possible. Yeah, so 10 years ago when you were in the hospital, <laughs> you could, no way would you have imagined where you are now. And I, I mean- In I, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> touring with a book. Yes, yes. Talking to a mad woman in a car. <laughs> Two non-Australians. Yeah. Doing a podcast in Australia. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I think... The thing, About mental health. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think 10 years ago, <laughs> one of the things was I couldn't... I had no tools to imagine a life for myself. And so, in one way, I was able to have the freedom to create a world all its own. But on the other side of that, there was nothing... It's like looking into the distance, into the future was nothing. I mean, it was, I couldn't even imagine anything being there, mm. you know? And it's kind of hard to explain. It's kind of hard for people that grow up in a 
space that allows them to dream and allows them to imagine what a life could be. It's hard to imagine that there are young people that are just not afforded that luxury and just look out and see empty space. You so know? had you have been asked when you were a teenager, what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, I don't think... I can't... I don't even think I had an answer. I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Okay. But by the time I was... 13 or 14 that was no longer a reality yeah and at that point there was just this void of like what is there for someone like me to do who doesn't have who's doesn't maybe not going to get a college education that doesn't have any family wealth that has no family structure that has no field i'm interested mm. or understand um and i i never was like i want to be a writer never um and then it just kind of it truly just kind of started happening and then once it started happening I was like oh I'll go that way I'll go in that direction mm. because there was nothing else because there was no other option and I was kind of like okay sure yeah let's do this if this you're gonna pay me sure and as long <laughs> as I was getting paid mm. my first college gig was seven years ago actually last week mm. it was seven years ago um, and they paid me 500 bucks to come and read some poems. I was 22 years old. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, yeah, I'll come read poems, you know. <laughs> um, and then I do gigs and I make a couple hundred bucks. And I'm like, oh, shit, I have a skill that people will pay me for. This is wild, you know. Mm. And I just kind of kept going and mm. kept doing it. Mm. <laughs> I must admit it's quite um it's quite interesting that first time you get a paying gig and by the sounds of things they pay a shitload better in America than they do well, in Australia. Well, here's the thing is that they they I actually a lot of people are like, "Whoa, that's a lot for a first time gig." And I didn't realize that, but that was like the person who ran that gig who worked at the university was a poet and believed in my work and made it happen to where I got a pretty hefty yeah. paycheck for a first time gig. I mean, now colleges pay a lot more now, but mm. then being 22, first paying gig, being 500 bucks was like, oh shit. I was paid 50 bucks for yeah. my first gig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd done slam gigs for, for 50 bucks, but this was like the first legit, my name was on a check. I got it. I got tax forms in the mail for it, you know? Right. But before that I had done slam gigs before a few, but yeah. I, I think I also, got really lucky really fast and that kept happening like yeah. my when I was 23 my first video went viral and then I started right. getting really big gigs after that and then another one went viral when I was 24 and then when I was 27 I got a book deal with button poetry which was like you couldn't imagine I couldn't have imagined that button poetry sells you know is the largest provider of spoken word in the world and the thought of that was like I just it's a lot of privilege. It's a lot of, it's a lot of being in the right place at the right time. It's a lot of people believing me and it's a lot of like preparedness and luck together. How has Cappy helped you with that, with that journey, with that sort of being in the right place, being at the right time? Has that, has that sometimes sort of been incongruent with the fact that you grew up the way that you did yeah. and how can I possibly be so lucky? There's no way this is going to last. Yeah. And I, she's done a lot of like, no, you're also skilled. Like, yeah, right, yeah. But you're also, like, a professional and you're also good at what you do. It's been a lot of, like, a lot of it is unpacking imposter syndrome, unpacking a lot of, like, you're deserving of this and it's not all just going to fall away at any point because I'm constantly, like, 
it's really even as an adult it's very 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 hard for me to imagine a future it's very very hard for me to plan it's very very hard for me to believe that there's something after that i don't know why in my head i'm just like okay this is the end of the road now you know it's very hard for me to be like okay in five years this is gonna happen in 10 years this is gonna happen and actually like believe it because that was never a part of my world yeah but it's a lot of like reminding myself with her of like this is what you do for a living and you can say that and that's true you're not lying you know mm. sometimes I'm like I still feel a little weird being like yeah I'm a writer and then being like wait am I do you have writer written on your passport no <laughs> I don't know that I have anything written on my passport actually because it used to be that you used <laughs> to have to have your occupation on your passport no, my occupation is not on my passport. Okay. But maybe I'll see if I can get it on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think... Because um, that makes you legit, you know? That is. Yeah, that does. That does. I know. Putting it in my Instagram bio is as close to legit as maybe I'll get. Filing on my taxes. Yeah. Which is pretty legit. But, um, yeah, it's been... Therapy has been, like... In my whole journey of... of Cappy has been my therapist for actually not too long she was my partner's therapist first and then we went together and now she's what yeah. we call the family therapist yeah <laughs> um and so she's i've been seeing her for just over a year by myself i've been seeing her for almost exactly a year right. and she just is man i just can't sing her praises enough she's really 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 skilled and she's really um yeah she's amazing and and i but i've had therapists that are were not a good fit and yeah. we're, I've never had like a horror story. Well, actually my first therapist in Baton Rouge was a bit of a horror story, but nothing like, but I, I was like, oh, after a couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, this is not working. And I just stopped going. Yes. But my therapist before Cappy was like nice, but she wasn't really, she wasn't doing the work that I needed. What, what wasn't do. she doing and what did you need? Cappy is like really, really, um, I don't necessarily like this phrase, but she's really tough love. She's really like, she pushes and pushes and pushes when she knows. So she, she can. challenges you. Yeah, yeah. But it's always, she's done a very incredible job of like always, always on my team, but mm. pushing and not like um, in a way that always feels like with love and always feels like for a greater good and never feels. And we've had a couple um, sessions that I've left pissed off about. Yeah. And she'll, next week, she'll be like, she she's apologized for stuff she's done. Um, yeah. She's been a therapist for like 20 years. She owns the practice. And she has, yeah, that's the other thing too, is that she fucks up and she is honest about it. And she's yeah. like, hey, I said this thing or I did this thing last, like one time in a session, she, it was a couples therapy session with me and Brian and got really, really, really emotional. And she was like, um... I need you to, to check in with somebody after this. And I got super defensive because as somebody who is a survivor of a suicide attempt, mm. that reads to me like, oh, you think I'm going to kill myself, you know, as mm. somebody who has that trauma. And I read it as that. And I, it got, I got really combative. Yeah. I got really emotional. I got really abrasive. And the next time she was like, I didn't even think about that being a trigger for you. I understand that it is. And I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. Like so I didn't she mean that. So she totally. acknowledged him. That's why. Wow. In a really so genuine way. And in a way that was like that she, you know, as a professional, I think you can take the route of like, I'm all knowing and I never fuck up or the route that she took, which is, which is a route that I trust much more as a 
as a person and as a client where she yeah. is um, coming to me and, 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 and validating that, that feeling that I felt that yeah. was like, I feel super triggered. I don't like that. I don't like you asking me that. And I couldn't articulate it to her in that moment. Um, but that's the other really interesting thing about being in couples therapy is that you get like to, it, you understand your yourself in a relation to someone else, which is like the way you exist in the world, but it's trippy. It's so yeah. different than by yourself. It's trippy. Yeah. 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 yeah I've, I've had that feedback from couples. It's like, yeah. I had no idea that I did that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. So the lady that was before Cappy that wasn't working for you, what, what, so she wasn't challenging you enough? She was young, um, and it just she felt more like, a f- like I liked her, but she w- it was like I would leave the sessions being like, I just felt like I was just talking to someone, like not even there was no there was not enough structure and I do credit this to her she'd only I think she'd been practicing for for just a couple years she was like I said in her 30s which is fine but Cappy had been practicing for 20 years yeah. and ran the practice and yeah. also Cappy's personal lived experience is mm. is I think important for her yeah. relationship with the practice um but the one before her there was nothing wrong with her but I just think she wasn't skilled enough for mm. me as a client yeah I think I needed somebody that was a little more um just was more skilled that's kind of the best mm. way I can put it so more the relationship so the relationship that you have with your therapist is absolutely critical yeah and I trust Cappy a lot and I trust um she's she's rough around the edges and she's a little abrasive and I feel I just realized this in well, since I've been here, my good friend Lauren, who booked all the gigs for me, she, <laughs> we interacted with this older this woman who was like in her fifties, and she's like a little bit abrasive and a little, um, really straightforward. And Lauren felt really weird about it, and I felt really comforted by it. Like I felt really <laughs> comfortable with like this older woman who like is kind of bare knuckles, like uh, just telling us how it is and Lauren felt a little like and I feel really comfortable with like I also have a very large middle-aged women fan base it's very I feel very proud of that um but I feel really comfortable with like middle-aged women that are like really straightforward and really just like to the point and have lived a life well your poetry is very as you said it's your poetry is very personal um and that you mentioned earlier on that your your first video went viral when you were 23 was which 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 poem was that it was thighs yeah. it was thighs yeah. so i'll put that on i'll put that a link to that <laughs> which on. everyone has heard yeah, yeah no no because it's it's absolutely fabulous and i can understand <laughs> why i can understand why people um have that have that relationship with th- that particular poem because it's about body image it's yeah. about you saying you know really this is what i am this is who i am and you can see suck it if you don't like it <laughs> thank so you it's absolutely it's it, i must admit it's one of the first things and i and i've always remembered it since hearing it three years ago yeah. and i have seen it a few times and uh, on 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 youtube and i can't do a gig without doing it still i'll never yeah. I, that poem's been on youtube for six years and i've probably done 
five gigs without it because there's always somebody that wants the real life experience of having it yeah. and I feel really grateful for that sometimes I'm like oh this fucking poem again especially if people come to multiple gigs I feel like I have to apologize to people because they're always going to hear that poem <laughs> but I feel really honored that folks feel really seen in it it's pretty yeah. amazing yeah absolutely yeah. so just before we finish up you're going to you're going to share a, the title poem of your book with us now um, and and then afterwards we'll 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 say au revoir and your gig this evening i'm going to record it for for the patreon patrons which will be able to see it so if you are wanting to hear more poetry from desiree you can find her on youtube but you can also find tonight's gig on 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 uh, on patreon which will be awesome so over to you what's the yeah what's this, is there a bit of a introduction to this well i actually it? was considering a different poem after this conversation but i'll read this one. Oh yeah no um it's just a <laughs> i've never it's a heavy 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 poem but um that's good it's perfect for the for the for the theme yeah it's really <laughs> heavy um but yeah it's just a it was like the first real attempt of writing about what it was like to be hospitalized and what that meant for me as a person that the little historical context every woman on my mom's side of her family has a, attempted suicide wow. um no one has died by suicide um but um they've attempted it and my aunt diana who um died um six five six years ago she was when I was younger, she's my mom's youngest sister, and she attempted suicide multiple times, and my mom was always basically the person that was there first and that was there in the hospital with her and all of mm. that. And so I thought about a lot about lineage, and I thought a lot about what it means to be, like, sometimes I feel like mental illness sometimes is just a response to being, like, a woman in the world, you know? And, and add another level of oppression on top of that. And... Um, it's a perfectly reasonable response to the world, you know? Mm. And so I th thought a lot about lineage. Um, you can find this poem on YouTube too, but it's, it's in the, it also took me about six months to <clears throat> really write. I'm an obsessive, um, editor and so anytime you hear me say the word or in this poem it's actually a slash on the page um and so seeing it on the page is different than hearing it but yeah. um i haven't read this poem in a long time so this is a, a prose po poem it's not it looks i know you're yeah. looking at that it's it's was written as one block and it i split it into two for the page it's not it's just the structure i gave it okay. um i wanted it to be a block of text because none of the line breaks felt write to me none of the line breaks felt like they were adding anything and so the decision i made was to make it one block of text mm. and in the book it's it's two identical blocks of text um mm. it looks like prose it's not it's just structured that way without okay. line breaks yeah. um <clears throat> so here we go this is the title poem sync i was my mother or her daughter when i learned to almost kill myself when I could no longer pretend the sadness or anguish was not swallowing me. I kept 100 pills down long enough to be kissed by every eager EMT, toads turning me to a real woman. Strapped to the stretcher, I wailed into the asylum. My wrists cut red or carnations blown from soiled body, funeral skin trimmed with a straight razor, wilted altar for blood before me. Aunt Kelly, shotgun between teeth, bathroom wall her brief constellation great grandma rifle pushed pulled into the folds of her aunt diana vodka and vicodin suv off a cliff belly up in the river 
sister, razor blade, bathtub, grandma, vomit until she disappears. I open my mouth, hope my mother's sad heart does not stumble drunk out of me. I am a body or I am a scrapbook of survivor's guilt. Turn each page and watch women make ugly shrine of their or my bones. Fish out the demon by slitting its throat. When I say demon, I do mean me. Maybe I want it to float or sink or be still long enough to see what my insides look like. What my heart sounds like in slow motion, each dragging gulp of blood, a glutton. Listen, <clears throat> I cannot tell the story about myself. It has to be about someone I do love. My mother scratches at her skin so viciously she has a field of ripened sores. I recite it in dreams, boats that I know are my mother or me sinking. I am dumping buckets of our blood from inside of her or me and is that not living? Being so close to death you paint it on your skin. Why can't the women I look like open without a blade? Why can we only let coroners or surgeons see in us? Can I tell you? Can I tell you, I chased the pills with flattened Sprite, felt them swell in my throat, blacked out, woke eight days later, the whole room maroon, Sister Laura always combing vomit from my hair, readying two braids to crawl down my selfish back, or even that the mental hospital had windows thick as an iced over lake, how we were salmon beneath, hungry for someone to drop a line, catch, release, briefly say of us from this bloody birth stream, this lesson on inheritance, and aren't I that? I am the most unreliable narrator. I lie through my stitched wrists, my seam and invisible fishing line. Oh, how this love or lineage drops into me, begs me to hold my breath and sink. Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. Thank you. So thank you very much to Desiree for speaking with me today. I've been Francis. I am, as always, your host. If you would like to hear more from Desiree, then please um, head on over to Patreon. If you would like to read a little bit more about and see some photographs of Desiree and a link to her to her YouTube channel, then you can find that at my website, secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Until next time, and as always, stay well. Thank you for listening to Secrets We Share. If you're interested in sharing some of your secrets, please visit our website at secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Keep an ear out for our next episode soon.